Rules to Reality is a podcast that highlights how regulation shapes or fails to shape our daily lives. I'm recording this from the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people. First Nations people have been custodians of this land for tens of thousands of years. Colonisation is a process that law and regulation have been deeply complicit in, taking land, sea, children and lives. I want to acknowledge that despite that ongoing colonisation, 60,000 years of wisdom continues and so too does non-Aboriginal Australia's obligations to take a daily personal responsibility to support reconciliation through truth and justice. Today is International Trans Day of Visibility. It is an annual celebration of trans pride and awareness, recognising trans and gender diverse experiences and achievements. It's also an opportunity to examine how regulation has shaped the lives of trans and gender diverse folk, often for the worse, but hopefully for the better as we move forward. What better way to do that than with Lee Carney, who's a queer non-binary advocate I've been fortunate to work with. Lee Carney is a human rights lawyer, advocate and campaigner who has worked on progressive law reform campaigns for the LGBTIQA community for a number of years. They're currently the Executive Director of Advocacy and Campaigns at Foundation for Young Australians and were previously the Founding Director, or Legal Director I should add, at Equality Australia, Australia's first national LGBTIQ plus legal advocacy and campaigning organisation. This conversation takes place on an important day and it covers some difficult terrain, particularly for members from the LGBTIQA plus community. Um, So please be sure to reach out um, to your networks if any difficult emotions come up for you in this episode. But I do hope you enjoy and learn a lot from this episode, as I've done. All right. Well, Comrade Lee, as you know, uh, in this podcast, the first question is always, why does regulation matter to you and to your community? Regulation has been so important to LGBTIQA plus communities because it has shaped our lives and our freedom and our ability to express our own identities um, and to stay safe from harm. There's like three types of regulation that I generally think of when I think about the ways that laws and policies have really influenced and shaped and impacted the lives of, you know, LGBTIQA plus folks. Um, And maybe we can talk about like what that term LGBTIQA plus means as well and break it down a bit for folks who might not be familiar with the diversity of like the amazing flamboyant queer radical rainbow community that I love being a part of um but there's three types of regulation the first is regulation that has actively harmed LGBTIQA plus folks the second is regulation that fails to protect us from harm by others and the third is regulation which is genuinely inclusive or affirming Mm. well I'd, I'd love to get to those um those three different levels or stages or epochs that we could talk about in terms of regulation. But um, why don't you uh, sort of orient our, our listeners a bit on what do you mean when you, when you talk about um, you know, LGBTIQA plus folk and uh, 
I suppose the, the question is, you know, I asked a question about community and what does that community represent to you? This is a really great, great question because I think that there's a lot of debate and discussion around the different communities that form like the LGBTIQA plus umbrella. But generally what we're talking about is sexual orientation. Um, and so we're generally talking about folks who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, pan. Um, then we're talking about gender identity. So folks who identify as trans, gender diverse, non-binary. Um, and within the umbrella as well, there's the I, which stands for intersex. And intersex is an umbrella term used to describe a wide range of innate bodily variations of sex characteristics. And then um, the A generally refers to um, folks who identify as asexual or aromantic as well, which, like, I think it's this question of whether, like, does that fall under sexual orientation or not, or is it, like, the opposite of a sexual orientation, right? Um, mm. And I think, I mean, today I'm probably going to focus on the parts of that alphabet that I have lived experience on. So, um, you know, I identify as queer and non-binary, um, and so I'm mostly going to be talking about um, the types of regulation that affects folks related to sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, I think I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail around how asexual and aromantic people's lives are regulated, except to say that they do experience indirect discrimination from regulation in the same way that folks who aren't in kind of romantic relationships do, assumptions and beliefs in the law around um, being partnered. Um, and they're also um, some regulation that disadvantages folks who are poly. Um, so things like um, legal recognition for people in monogamous romantic relationships and benefits under wills and estates law and taxes and superannuation, et cetera. Um, I'll also talk a bit about the issues affecting intersex folks, but I should say I'm not intersex myself. So this is mostly around um, trying to act in allyship with intersex advocates around the issues that they advocate for, but it's not something that I have lived experience of. So I just want to be really careful and, and put forward that that's not something I'm claiming, you know, um, deep expertise in. Thanks, Lee. Um, and look, I'm sure the listeners would be um, riveted to know that we could go into a state law um, tonight. So that's, um, that's very exciting. Um, so <laughs> it is very important. If you don't have a will yet, you definitely should get one. I'm a big advocate for that. Well, there you go. There's our there's our promo. Brought <laughs> thousands of people to this this podcast. Uh, you, you laugh, Simon, but I actually worked on this really awesome project with a bunch of trans and gender diverse organisations. After um, we started hearing really horrendous human rights violating accounts of older trans and gender diverse people um, who, when they passed away, their loved ones weren't allowed to attend the funeral, who were buried in clothes that they hadn't worn for twenty or thirty years. Um, where they were buried by families who hadn't spoken to them in decades, who used um, their dead names and the wrong pronouns for them and wouldn't let their chosen family attend their funerals. Um, we've heard stories about, you know, same-sex couples who've been together lovingly for decades and decades. Then when they've passed away, um, their partner has been, you know, kicked out of the home that they've lived in and built for many years by family members who aren't supportive. So, like, it, I know that it's really dry, but actually in the LGBTIQA plus community, like, wills and estates are really important because when you don't have those fundamental legal protections for your relationship or for your gender identity, um, when that regulation doesn't protect you, it can lead to these devastating impacts that, you know, most folks who, who are cis or straight just never have to worry about. Well, that's a perfect example of that, right? So 
I really um, appreciate that. And I mean, it, it does, well, it, it illustrates two things. Yeah. Like there's a, um, a question, a question or a fact of privilege here that, that sort of doesn't allow me to, to see that. But then, yeah, secondly, it highlights the hidden role that the regulation can play in people's lives. And so earlier on, you, you kind of mapped out, if I understand, three different levels at which regulation has for worse and then hopefully for better uh, a role in people's lives. So, you know, maybe let's step through them. So that that first level or that first stage, the actively harmful regulation could you tell me what you mean by that so this is laws or policies regulation that causes harm so examples of this are um, laws which criminalize consensual same-sex activity Um, so the international lgbtq organizations around the world often rank countries around the world um, looking at how many countries um, still punish, imprison, have a death penalty um, for being in a loving same-sex relationship. Um, For a long time in Australia, obviously, we had a definition of marriage, which was the union of a man and a woman. (laughs) Um, And so that actively excluded anyone who didn't fall within that, you know, very gender binary, um, very heteronormative version of a romantic relationship. Um, For many years as well, there were prohibitions on um, LGBTIQ folks being able to access um, adoption services or to have kids or start a family through IVF. Um, and there are also lots of outdated um, identity or birth certificate laws which um, require trans and gender diverse folks to jump through huge amounts of bureaucratic mess and legal regulation and medical gatekeeping just to legally affirm their gender. Um, And there's a whole range of other ways um, that when you think about it, that regulation has caused active harm and the flow on impacts for that. So as an example, um, a few years ago now, um, with the amazing Jamie Gardner and Anna Brown uh, at the Human Rights Law Centre, we ran an expungement legal clinic. And so we provided a free service where um, people who had historical same-sex convictions Um, could apply to have their criminal records expunged. So at the time, Victoria didn't have a spent conviction scheme. So not only um, were our clients people who had, um, you know, often lost their jobs, um, who had been imprisoned, who'd been criminalised for being, you know, gay or for being trans or for being bi generally. Um, And they're also examples of, um, you know, uh, people who were in lesbian relationships as well who were charged with criminal offences. Um, not only were they kind of fined, um, forced to undergo, you know, medical treatment against their will, um, subjected to criminal sanctions, but because these offences were sex offences, they never came off their criminal records. Um, And so it meant that many of our clients had never travelled overseas. Um, It meant that many of them, even when they were kind of um, victims themselves of other crimes or experienced injustice, would never feel comfortable going to the police to report a crime because of the way that they were treated. They were often outed um, by police and media to their jobs, to their families, against their will. So when you think about like the impact that that had, not just on those individuals, but the systemic cultural community impact of for so many years uh, for a community being seen as criminal, seeing as so, um, you know, deviant in the eyes of the law and regulation um, that you could go to prison 
um, I think we're still feeling um, through our connections with our community elders, the impacts and consequences and ripple effects of those harmful laws, which were in place for, you know, decades and decades. Yeah, interesting. I had a I had a different follow up question, but um, that I was percolating. But the the way you took that towards the end, and I should um, I should sort of put on the table that I'm not speaking from a position of any kind of lived experiential kind of knowledge or expertise here. Um, and so I I trust you'll correct me if I'm uh, my questions are are heading down the wrong pathway. But what what you were talking about there just highlighted to me that regulation and this might be really obvious to to lots of people but it's not just about regulating the phenomena that it claims to regulate you know so marriage or a birth certificate or um you know who can um you know who can travel where but it's about regulating you know who people are and the shape of society and in my own mind what i was seeing was that that branch or stage of regulation was creating this incredibly narrow, um, just narrow uh, corridor in which the whole, everyone had to fit within. Um, again, that's sort of just a reflection. I'm not sure if that reflects how, how you see that or if you yeah. wanted to extend or challenge that. Yeah, definitely. Like often these laws, not just the laws themselves, but the way that authorities chose to enforce these laws mm. um, meant that, like, they were deliberately designed um, to try to force people into hiding. Like, mm. they meant that um, for decades communities um, were forced to live in fear um, without feeling that security and safety of ever being able to appeal to the government or to the state or to the authorities for support or assistance. Um, so they were incredibly isolating, damaging laws that, yeah, didn't just seek to shape what your relationship was or to affect your body, but really chose to deliberately cause harm mm. to punish people within the LGBTIQA plus community just for being ourselves. Yeah. And, yeah, as your earlier example in the state law shows that it's not even visible to a lot of us. And it also highlight, but 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 what I reflect when I think of, um, again, you've listed off so many examples that I'm, I'm certainly not across. But when you talk about same-sex marriage, birth certificate, um, some of the other examples you were talking about, what I also noticed that the the regulation that does significant direct harm, and you know, as you as you know, intentional harm. What I notice in the public discussion to uh, either bring those laws into effect or to keep those laws in is. The people doing it claim a victim status and that they're protecting something. So rather than it being a uh, a sword, they characterise it as a as a shield. I don't know if if that resonates. And it just the, the just how much that confuses the conversation. Mm, yeah, you can't progress when everyone's a victim, right? And it doesn't have to be that someone's evil and someone's um, good, but it really confuses progress. Um, however you define that, when the people doing the harm claim to be the victims of the harm. Yeah, it has been coming up a lot over the last few years around debates around the Religious Discrimination Bill. Um, and previously, um, this was the main frame around the safe schools debate as well that made it so difficult. I mean, when you talked about marriage equality 
um, we always made sure that we were talking about, you know, loving couples wanting to get married in front of their families in the country that they call home. Um, this was about fairness and equality, dignity and respect, love, commitment and happiness. Mm. But on the other side, they would say, no, we're just trying to protect the sanctity of marriage or, mm. you know, um, we're trying to protect our traditional values um, and positioning LGBTIQA plus folks as, you know, antagonists or as people trying to tear down the moral fabric of society mm. rather than as, you know, one of the most um, you know, historically and continuing to be, you know, persecuted, discriminated against um, communities like in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, I think it, um, it sort of moves quite well into that, um, that, that reflection anyway, into uh, the, that second stage or um, what, Lee, tell me, what should I be saying? Is this a stage or is this a, um, <laughs> Epoch or uh, is this a zeitgeist of regulation? What is, what is, what do we uh, what do we how do we characterize these things? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if they're just. I've just. Um, th- this is often how we used to categorize them when we were thinking through the work that we needed to do when I was working in LGBTIQA plus advocacy. Yeah. Generally, we would start with for many years. Our goal was to remove every last stain of discrimination um, from from our laws and from our regulations to wipe clean every every last stain of discrimination. Mm. Um, And we've mostly done that, which was kind of the first part that I talked about. Mm. And at the moment, we're mainly in this next stage, I think, because they are kind of sequential. You can jump between them. There's crossover between them. It's not, they're not clean categories. But generally, the current battleground is around regulation that fails to protect LGBTIQA plus people from harm by other people in society. And, um, so, and what does that look like? And what does that look like? Or what are, you, what are those contests that we're, um, I, I, I'm not sure I should be saying we because I'm not directly affected, but that that your community and hopefully people that I'm a m- member of are good allies on trying to address at the, at the moment. So at the moment, a lot of the fights that are happening that are impacting the LGBTIQA plus communities are around religious exemptions from discrimination laws. Um, the Religious Discrimination Bill, which has received a lot of focus. Also, you know, the One Nation Bill in New South Wales around education. Um, there's a lot around exemptions which allow non-consensual surgeries on intersex kids and the lack of discrimination protections for trans and gender diverse folks in general. For example, a lot of people don't know that um, trans and gender diverse folks aren't protected from discrimination on the basis of gender identity under the Fair Work Act. Mm. Um, There's also been some progress, but a lot of work that still needs to be done around protecting LGBTQ plus folks from harmful conversion therapy practices. And also there's been kind of increasing focus on the impact of hate speech and hate crime on LGBTIQA plus communities and people. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. So, um, you know, a lot of the listeners will be across, uh, across the religious discrimination bill. Uh, and I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people probably would have been affected by um, the debate on that. Um, where are we at? You, you spoke a bit about hate speech and vilification protection. So um, one of our earlier interviewees, Dr. Uh, Angelie Silva, De Silva, sorry, um, she, she spoke about um, uh, hate speech protections there. Um, on the basis of uh, gender or, or sex. Um, wh- where are we at on 
protections for people on the basis of sexual orientation, um, gender identity? Um, so a few years ago, um, when I was working at the Human Rights Law Centre's LGBTI Rights Unit, um, we pulled together a report called End the Hate that looked into experiences of hate speech and hate crime experienced by LGBTIQ communities, particularly with a focus on Victoria, but there's also a number of case studies nationally. Um, and it looked particularly at experiences of hate speech and hate crime during the Marriage Equality Postal Survey. Um, and as part of that, we looked at existing protections from hate speech across Australia. And so we looked at the different communities and who was protected and who wasn't. And generally the protections from hate speech in the ACT and Tasmania are like generally better. They protect folks on the basis of sexual orientation, gender identity and intersex status. Um, in Queensland, um, people are protected from hate speech on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. In New South Wales, um, they have strange terminology there, but effectively if you're lesbian, gay or trans, then you're protected from um, hate speech in New South Wales. Um, but there's still a huge amount of work that needs to be done to protect LGBTIQA plus folks from hate speech um, in the Northern Territory, in South Australia, Victoria, Western Australia, and federally as well. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and, and, and that was my understanding was um, for, the, for the listeners, I first met Lee when they uh, were at the Human Rights Law Centre and they co-facilitated a, a session at one of the workplaces I worked at and... Um, yeah, they were they were the expert on this topic. So um, you should all be so privileged to to hear from them today. Um, uh, but on that point, so I have to say, when I uh, I'm going to name my um, my vast um, just one at least one slice of my vast ignorance at the moment, and and I apologise that you might have to correct me here. But what? Why do we have the term gender identity and gender? Um, so, because to my mind, uh, if you identify as a particular gender, does that not become your gender at that point in time? And therefore, we would just use the term gender. Yeah, they're they're messy terms, and regulation generally hasn't defined them particularly well. Um, most laws, policies and regulations still use the term sex and they often have a definition that refers to biological sex characteristics and that actively kind of excludes um, folks who are not cis. Um, so gender identity is used in regulation to refer to trans or gender diverse or non-binary folks generally um, and to provide protections that are kind of separate from how sex has traditionally been protected under law, which has generally been um, protections for women exclusively and particularly for cis women. Mm. Do, do you, so that, yeah, um, I'm not trying to like um, uh, be like, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, but uh, that, that, <laughs> <laughs> that was my understanding in case the, the <laughs> listeners are like, who is this dickhead? But um, uh, I... So, because, uh, this is where I, I could be getting wrong. Could you not just have the term gender to encapsulate both of those? Generally, um, it would be much cleaner and easier for everyone to understand if regulation used the term gender instead of sex. 
often what we're having to do though is we're having to cobble together amendments to existing frameworks um, where there's resistance from parliamentary decision makers to change too much of the wording. Um, There's been a few workarounds about how we've done that. So for example, in Adelaide, um, in Adelaide, in South Australia, um, the way that they got around this um, was in their version of the Acts Interpretation Act. Um, This is, I'm really talking to the law nerds out there, Um, but effectively they had a provision that said any reference to gender or sex is gender inclusive. Um, So what this means is that instead of having to go through every statute, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of statute um, and look at every reference to man or woman or he or she um, and to change every single incidence of that, effectively what this does is that says is in every bill in South Australia, um, any reference to man or woman includes any human being, including gender diverse folks who don't identify as a man or a woman. Any reference to he or she also includes a reference to they for folks who use um, non-binary pronouns. So there are some clever ways, I think, that advocates have gotten around the challenges with having to update multiple laws, many of which are outdated and use language that just doesn't reflect the reality of our lives today. Mm. There you go. Uh, maybe that we can prompt a shift to our axe interpretation. Uh, there is another, uh, I'm really another. bringing the exciting and thrilling calls to action tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. This one's going to blow up. Um, <laughs> I um, No, but I mean, again, that's another example of, that's a, clearly another example of um, something that, yeah, does not appear particularly political or politicised, um, having, having a political dimension for people's lived experience. Um, so, you know, well, an example of how this came up later was um, when they were looking at decriminalizing abortion in South Australia, and there were some amendments put forward um, effectively to try to, conservative amendments were put forward to try to um, ensure that if someone was trans or non binary, that they would be ruled out of being able to access the. Um, the changes to the abortion laws. Um, and so, like at the time, you know, we had conversations with um, amazing gender equality and gender justice advocates working in South Australia who were really worried about what that would mean. And we were able to point to this provision um, that said, actually, um, the term gender is really gender inclusive and gender binary references in South Australian laws are to be interpreted inclusively and broadly to encompass a range of gender identities under South Australian law. So, like there's real active cases and situations where it comes up where um, we've been able to ensure that the rights of folks have been preserved because of um, the wording of like really technical types of regulation like this. Yeah, and I should um, say for, for those who um, haven't um, have either not gone to law school or, or repressed that part of their life, um, <laughs> that, that first year when you do the Acts Interpretation Act, that is basically, it's kind of this catch-all piece of legislation that, uh, as the name suggests, helps you interpret words that are commonly in, in other pieces of legislation. So we spoke one, we spoke there about gender. Another one I remember is person. So person um, can mean like a, a quote-unquote natural person. So um, I'd like to think of myself as one of those, um, but also like a, a corporate 
person. So like corporations are people in the eyes of the law. And um, so it, what, what the Acts Interpretation Act would say is that therefore when you read that in any other legislation, it should be read as meaning corporation and, and a natural person at the same time. Uh, anyway, I can hear you um, unsubscribing as we continue. So let's move on <laughs> to the next question. Um, uh, so you've kind of um, uh, spoken about like the uh, three levels you know, and, and now we're getting hopefully to the to the better level or the better stage of regulation. And so that's, I guess, affirmative regulation, regulation trying to um, change that from that narrow corridor to one that's much broader, but also um, equalise and, and make this, the public square more equitable, I guess, or at a fairer community to, to live in. So how, um, firstly, um, how much of what I just said in the last 15 seconds needs to be corrected? And then secondly, um, how do you, what's your understanding of that third kind of stage? No, I think you've got it right. I think um, often when we think about it, we split up the categories into, um, you know, decriminalisation of it. Um, protection of relationships and identities or protection from harm. And then this third one is often about, we talk about self-determination or genuine inclusion or um, affirmation. So it's not just about stopping the bad stuff from happening or stopping laws from actively harming us or ensuring that laws actually protect LGBTIQA plus people from the harm that we experience from other people in society. These are laws which are actually proactively protective or proactively safeguard our human rights. Um, so there are some really great examples of this. So um, if you work at a workplace or you go to a cafe and there's a gender-inclusive bathroom, um, or if um, your kid is going to a safe school where they have gender-inclusive uniform policies so that anyone can wear the uniform of their choice. Um, Malta has really um, progressive protections for intersex people to prevent um, medically unnecessary surgeries. Um, they, we don't have the same kinds of protections in Australia, but it's something that intersex advocates um, like the folks at Intersex Human Rights Australia have been advocating for for many years. Um, Argentina is an example of a country that has really incredible and progressive laws supporting trans and gender diverse folks to access free gender affirmation surgery, um, unlike in Australia where it's incredibly costly, the cost is prohibitive and there's, there's so many medical barriers um, to be able to access basic healthcare to affirm your gender. Mm. Um, and another example is best practice workplace gender affirmation policies. So, you know, if you're thinking about, well, you know, what can I do or what are some things that can happen? We'll have a, we'll have a chat about how you can support trans and gender diverse organisations um, at the end of this podcast. But um, something that you could do at your workplace is to have a chat around whether you've got a gender affirmation policy and to implement one so that... <clears throat> your workplace is going to be a safer, more affirming, more genuinely inclusive place for trans and gender diverse staff. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, can I can I um, uh, curiously ask the question, do you think the intersex law that you were talking about there, the, the Malta's quite progressive laws, arguably, could you put those in the second stage as well? Um, or do you think that they're firmly, like just because they're stopping harm occurring, this probably refers to the fact that things could jump over multiple um, levels. But Yeah, that's right. I think that there's a few, a few of these examples that could probably fall into multiple categories mm -hmm. um, because, yeah, you can interpret them in different ways. Um, so another example is... Um, 
you know, identity document laws, ID laws, for example, um, mm. like previously um, there were no ways for people to change the gender on their birth certificate at all. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of decades ago there was a raft of regulation which introduced changes to birth certificate and ID laws to allow trans people to change the gender on their birth certificates, but only if they were able to satisfy a range of legal requirements and generally these requirements that they had to be um, unmarried. So it was seen that they, um, they, it wouldn't be a backdoor to marriage equality was the example that was the phrase that was used at the time. Um, they had to have surgery on their reproductive organs. Um, they had to be over the age of 18. Um, and there weren't avenues for non-binary folks um, to access, you know, gender diverse or gender inclusive gender markers on birth certificates for a long time. And that, that's still the case in some jurisdictions in Australia. Um, and so it is this curious thing where, um, you know, before these laws were introduced, which um, there was absolutely no way for trans folks to access ID that reflected, mm. you know, their gender identity. Um, and the purpose of this is to protect trans folks from um, discrimination in everyday life, right? Mm. Um, being refused a job because you're trans or um, being denied um, access to benefits or being uh, mistreated when you go to a bank or when you go to uni or when you try to line up your Centrelink payments. Um, so, like 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, these laws were seen as progressive. But when we look at the laws that still exist like this now, what we see are laws that really um, are based on a very medicalised view of gender identity, which put the hands into medical decision makers to determine whether you're trans enough to be able to legally affirm your gender based on what your body looks like, um, rather than a much more inclusive, self-determinative version of gender, which is what we're aiming for now. So, like, I think at different stages that um, birth certificate laws and have fallen in each of those three categories over time, right? Like, they're, it's, it's a bit of an imprecise science. No, no, no. Well, I think um, uh, that's a wonderful explanation of, uh, yeah, the stages that that whole, I don't know if you call it area of law or experience goes through to, to find liberation. And the other thing I was just reflecting when you were talking about some of the, the the laws that you're pushing towards in this third stage, the, the affirmative kind of stage, uh, it reminds me of um, of the positive duties that you have under, um, uh, I think it's only Victoria, right? I don't think there's a positive duty anywhere else, yeah. Um, so a positive duty, uh, and, and Lee will also correct me because um, they know more about this, uh, but a positive duty under Victorian law and has been advocated for at national law is um, that it's not just dealing with an individual matter of um, uh, discrimination or there's individual obligations um, uh, to prevent discrimination or sexual harassment, but it's that you have a positive duty to try to eliminate that in your workplace or wherever it is in the public square and that might be an education setting or in goods and services and whatnot. And so you need to be on the lookout for it. And so to me, it's, it's this call to, call to arms or call to action for um, all individuals. And that applies to basically anywhere in, in public spaces. There are some carve-outs um, uh, that, that aren't great. But to, to make, the, make the space you're in fairer, and, I, and I, does that map on to, as a general philosophy, 
um, an, an obligation to actually influence the space you're in, kind of what that third stage is about? Yeah, I think that's a really apt analogy. Um, some, I'm trying to think of some examples that I can give that will illustrate this to folks tuning in today. But I think there's a couple of examples of how this could play out. Um, so one would be around like the difference between a parental leave policy that has, you know, maternity leave and paternity leave <laughs> um, mm. towards a policy that um, like has equal parental leave regardless the gender of the gender of the parents or the type of relationship they're in or how many parents are co-parenting a child, um, which also has parental leave protections regardless of um, the type of family formation that you have. So if you've adopted a child, um, if, you know, um, kids have come into your care through um, the foster care system, um, that, um, you know, if the parent of the child, like, isn't, um, who gives birth, like, doesn't identify as a mother still being able to access equal protections, I feel like that might be one example um, that Mm -hmm. might help to concretise it for folks. Um, another example, so we talked about gender affirmation before. Another example would be, um, so for example, the difference between, um, uh, you know, having protections from discrimination for folks who are trans or gender diverse. So like actively in the workplace saying, you know, if you're being bullied or mistreated or being denied job opportunities or, um, you know, uh, promotion opportunities because of your gender identity, then we'll protect you from that we'll make sure that that doesn't happen to a gender affirmation policy which actively says um that recognizes that trans or gender diverse folks face unique barriers and challenges in the world in affirming our gender and which says actually you can access gender affirmation leave or you can access a gender affirmation stipend or here are the specific protections to um safeguard your privacy because we know that there are legal requirements around um identity and data and that dead naming and the use of incorrect pronouns causes real harm so Mm. yeah like as society has historically and maybe currently pushed down on you we're going to give you a leg up to 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 deal with that and and what that also reminds me of is um uh under disability the un convention on the rights of people with uh, disability there's a right to health um without discrimination and um, that, to me, is another example. If you applied it in this setting, that I'm talking, that's in a disability setting. But in this setting, it, I would, in my lay interpretation, make that to mean you, you have a right to healthcare, so you have a right to a leg up. But that healthcare should affirm your gender um, rather than, as we've talked about, the medical system often um, uh, not not doing that or or actively moving in an opposite direction. Um, yeah. That's like a really important point to make, I think, around the impacts of regulation on LGBTIQA plus folks with intersecting identities. Um, So, and this is also somewhere that like regulation and practice and resourcing often intersect. Um, So um, LGBTIQA plus folks are more likely to experience homelessness, um, Mm -hmm. but there are no LGBTIQA plus specific shelters um, um, so you're sort of looking at the intersection where if you're experiencing homelessness, you can get access, you should be able to access crisis accommodation or a refuge or emergency housing, but often that housing isn't safe, mm-hmm. LGBTIQA plus folks. And particularly um, there's still, you know, women's refuges where trans women aren't um, 
like aren't allowed to uh, go there, even if, you know, you're experiencing family violence and you're forced to leave home and you, you turn up at a refuge and you ask for support, um, there's still kind of this challenge, I think, in getting regulation and practice to recognise that LGBTIQA plus folks are um, also experiencing mental health issues and are also members of First Nations communities um, and, you know, ex- uh, you know, have disabilities, live with disabilities um, and maybe like a couple of other examples of how this plays out in practice. Um, often in the criminal justice system, there's like one set of policies if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander about what should happen if you're taken into custody. Um, and then there's a separate protocol around what should happen if you're um, trans or gender diverse and you're taken into custody. And often those two policies don't speak to each other. Um, so this is around, you know, um, whether if you're taken into police custody, you should be um, put in a cell with someone of like the same gender or of someone of um, the same indigeneity as you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so often these policies don't talk to each other. So if you are a trans Aboriginal person who's taken into custody, often it means that you fall through the gaps of regulation because the mm-hmm. different systems and uh, just aren't talking to each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, and we um, this is covered in so many of the other um, podcast episodes, but uh, it's all there's also a lack of equal equal protection before the law, i.e., the regulators themselves. So we might have those policies that you just referred to, and maybe they do in an ideal world talk to each other. But does the duty holder actually listen to those? So do the police listen to them, um, and does the regulator get in there? and actually enforce that. Um, anyone who's learned, learned me spiel on this podcast would know I <laughs> have a lot of scepticism about that. But um, I won't let us hang on um, on a downer where I rant about regulators. I think, you know, Lee's covered, I guess, these three different stages of regulation and in particular towards the end where we can hope to get to in terms of some laws actually affirm identities and create a fairer society. But we always end with a question uh, around a call to action. So, so Lee, what is uh, one question or sorry, one thing that you want the listeners to go away and do today? I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say two things. <laughs> everyone cheats. I, everyone yeah. cheats on this. <laughs> I don't know what that says about you, Simon, your ability yeah. to like. I'm not a good regulator. I'm mind. not a good regulator. <laughs> Yeah. That's okay. Sometimes um, it's important for regulators to have an open mind, to you know, be flexible and reflect yeah. the real people who are um, impacted by the power that you have. Some might say um, uncaptured, um, but anyway, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to the audience. Um, I'm going to send folks to two different places. I think that this podcast will be coming up around the time of Transgender Day of Visibility. So I'm going to focus on um, sending folks in the direction of amazing trans and gender diverse led community organisations in Australia. Um, If you want to donate to a range of different initiatives, you can go to tdov.org.au. There's um, different ally packs that you can download. Um, You can access access resources there. Um, If you want to print out something and take it into your workplace to show solidarity for trans and gender diverse folks, or if you want to make a donation, you can do that. But I think that um, if you're listening to this podcast and it's a few months later on and you're not sure where to donate, I'd strongly recommend um, buying some new merch from Transcend Australia. Um, This is if you want to support an organisation campaigning for the rights of transgender young people um, who are currently, as we've seen in recent months, being targeted by um, 
political parties and really um, used in political games um, around religious freedom. So um, you can head to transcend.org.au, buy a T-shirt or a lanyard or a sticker or a trucker hat and wear it to your next barbecue or come along to the next rally around protecting LGBTQ students and teachers from discrimination in religious schools. All right. I'm going to do that. I hope our audience does too. Thanks, Lee. It's been been my privilege. Thanks, Simon. Woo! <laughs>